0: <laughs> yeah, you mentioned, in a little over uh, a week and a half now, Lisa and I are going to Costa Rica. Um, this will be my third visit with our missionaries down there, Ed and Peggy Wagner. Uh, Lisa's first time to go with me, and it's really going to be uh, uh, a significant time of preaching. Not that the preaching is significant, though I hope it is, but uh, in our nine days there, I will be preaching nine times. Um, there are some days where I double up, so we actually have two days where we have to just kind of kick back and hang out with the Wagners and uh, maybe uh, go to the ocean and watch the white-faced monkeys and the raccoons and whatnot, but uh, it's really kind of a real, real cool blessing. So um, just appreciate your prayers uh, for us as we go. When Jay asks me to preach, normally we're in the middle of a series, and, and I say, okay, Jay... Um, what, what verse or what passage in the book of the Bible or what theme do you want me to cover? And, and he gives me, uh, some direction. And so when I asked him, oh, a month or six or eight weeks ago, whenever it was that he asked me, I said, so what are, what's the theme? What book are we on? What are we doing? And he just said, well, you just kind of figure that out on your own, Carrie. Just do what the Lord leads. And I thought, oh, wow, a little bit of, a little bit of liberty, a little bit of freedom. And yet with great freedom comes great responsibility. So I began to pray, Lord, what exactly do you want me to share? And after a couple of days of just praying that, I kind of felt the Lord say to me, well, Carrie, what do you want to preach? Which is interesting because... Uh, several years ago, I, I was involved in a, in a uh, uh, working with a funeral home kind of as their chaplain. A lot of people who would, who died and didn't have a church home the, needed someone to come and do a service for them. And so the, the director of the funeral home, he and I became good friends, and he would call me two or three times a month. So I would go to the funeral home. I'd meet with the people, uh, and, and and we would talk about what they wanted in the service. And most people really had no clue... What they wanted as far as a funeral service, so um, I, I began to process what I want done at my own funeral service, and it 's Lisa and my kids all know that in the back of my Bible are the songs I want sung and or played, and yet I really never had a scripture portion that I wanted the minister now minister to, to to share and, and the reality is they may ignore that altogether. I'm not going to be around to have any say in the matter. But they all know what songs I want, sung or played, and I didn't have a verse. And like in the last three or four weeks, the Lord has been kind of, again, stirring my heart, what do you want people to share from a, the portion of the Scripture when you die? And this passage in Colossians, that is our text for this morning, is kind of where I am. So this is, I'm not preaching my own funeral message. I hope. I hope this is not a prophetic word, (laughs) though I hope it is prophetic in that sense. But this kind of, kind of, just what what I want want to be what summarizes. My life as a pastor, as a missionary, as a person who proclaims the word of the Lord. And, and so again, this is what's on my heart. Jay, you, you, you picked on me already this morning. You said I, I picked like one of the greatest passages of scripture. And I just again, this is where the Lord has, has been percolating in my heart. And so two verses this morning from Colossians chapter one. And I'm just calling this the greatest message, not because I'm a great preacher or a great speaker. It's not great because of me. But it's great because it reveals, I believe, the heartbeat of God. And it reveals the character and the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. And and that's what makes it great. So Paul says to the church in Colossae, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. To this end I labor. Struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I believe it's important to have some concept or some understanding of the historical context, uh, uh, cultural context of this letter. So the, the biblical scholars would call this an occasional letter. Uh, not, not because we need to read it occasionally, but because there was a specific occasion which prompted uh, Paul through the Holy Spirit to write to the church. And again, if we were doing a complete you know, six or eight week study on the book of Colossians, I could probably spend the entirety of the message today doing all this historical cultural context, but I can't do that this morning. But there are a couple of quick observations I think that are really critical for us because the church in Colossae had begun to drift theologically. They had begun to drift into to embrace some errors. It seems like they were in the process of merging several cultural philosophies with their doctrine. And the most egregious error that they were embracing was an early form of what's called Gnosticism. Um, It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which simply means to know or to have knowledge. So the belief in Gnosticism is partly that salvation only comes through special revelation or special knowledge. And since knowledge is the focus, again, the intellectual realm becomes the focus, the Gnostics believe that the physical realm is evil. Because they believe the physical realm is evil, they believe that Jesus never came in the flesh, never, became, never came to this planet as a baby. They, he never lived a physical life, never died a physical death, never rose from the dead physically. So in, in essence, what was creeping into the church in Colossae was a belief that we're still all lost. Because if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, we are to be pitied more than most is what First Corinthians 15 tells us. It was, a, it was a destruction of the person and work of Jesus Christ that was creeping into the church. And I think this is important for us in our culture today because there is a, there is a tendency in some churches to begin to allow the message of Jesus to be muted and to begin to embrace some secular philosophies in the church. Not not Grace Chapel Church, but in the greater body, there's some tendencies. I think it's important for us to be reminded that we need to center our message as a church. And again, I'm so thankful that that's what we do here at Grace Chapel, or Grace Church, or... Grace View on Plain Church or Plain View on Grace Church, whatever. However, whatever this church here on Plain View Road, we just preach the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's so exciting to me. But, but as a reminder to us as a church, as, to, as, as believers, the Apostle Paul lays out what we need to be doing. Again, the, he says, first of all, we, we proclaim Him meaning Jesus Christ. We proclaim. That word proclaim is is kind of a different word in the Greek. A lot of, a lot of times when we see the word proclaim... In, in, in the New Testament, it's one form of the word, one form of a Greek word. But this one, it kind of means not just those who stand before the church or for before a congregation. The word proclaim, when he says we proclaim, it means we as individual believers and we as a corporate body, we proclaim and not just speak or preach, no, not three-point outlines. doesn't mean that. It just simply means this is the message that we speak, and we speak with earnestness, And we speak with urgency. We proclaim him. So I I began to look at this. We proclaim him. And I thought, well, what is it exactly that we are supposed to proclaim about Jesus? Because there are a lot of things about Jesus that are proclaimed in our world today. In fact, I mentioned to our, our, our fusion group, I think one of our last times that our fusion group met, I said, the Bible is the only book, to my knowledge, in the history of the world where people like the movie better than they like the book. Think about that for a minute. Because when we read the entirety of the message, it doesn't look like what we see portrayed in our media. When we portray Jesus according to the, the, the culture of our, uh, our current culture, we mold and shape it so that Jesus is actually a God that is formed in our image. Ooh. ooh! I'm leaving on the 12th. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, what are we supposed to preach? And I began to think, okay, what is it that Paul said in this message or in this letter to the church? What are some things that he wants us to focus on in our proclamation? And I've listed ten things on your your, uh, uh, insert, and I think they'll be on a slide up over my shoulder as well. Again, time doesn't allow me uh, very much time to really elaborate on any one of these ten. But if we look at verses 15 to 27, let me just give you a little insert. I'm not even going to take time to read them today. Take the notes home, process it uh, this week or this afternoon or tomorrow sometime. But look at what Paul says we are to proclaim about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Again, that word image, it's a Greek word, E-I-K-O-N. It's pronounced icon. Icon. How many of have ever heard the word icon before? Yeah, that little image that you have on your smartphone, your tablet, or your computer. Icon, it's a physical representation. And, and in the Greek, it means the representation that is based in the fullness of the reality. So Jesus Christ as the image of the invisible God isn't just a little, little segment of God. He is fullness of God revealed to us. He's the firstborn over creation. A lot of times people in, in, in cults will look at this verse and say, Well, see, Jesus was born just like a little child was born. He really, wasn't, he really isn't God because he was born. And, and the reality is that expression is an idiomatic expression. The, the firstborn over creation literally means he is the fountainhead of creation. Not, not someone who is born, but is the one who is the source of all that has been created. Remember, the church in Colossae is doubting uh, if physical stuff is good. They're saying it's evil. And Paul is saying, oh, wait a minute. Jesus, whom we proclaim, not only embraces the physical realm, he is the source of everything in the physical realm that we can see. So much so that the third thing we see is that he is the creator. He created everything that exists. Jesus Christ, our creator. Again, I, I, I could, each one of these, if we had time, could be a two or three point message on its own. And I obviously don't have time for that this morning. But we need to be reminded that Jesus Christ is the creator. He's the sustainer that we read also. Not only did he create, but he is active in our world today. Some people will say, well, I believe that, that God kind of maybe got things rolling way, way back when, and then he kind of kicked back and decided to let things unfold on their own and see what happens. No, no, no. Let me tell you something right now. He is actively involved in the world today. He is the one that holds it together. He is the sustainer. He is physically sustaining the universe by the power of his grace as we speak. He's the head of the church, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says that he will build his church and nothing will defeat it. He's the head. Again, calling to remembrance the physical attribute of a head for the church. Again, Paul is dealing with people that think the physical realm is wicked and evil. And he's highlighting the physical reality of who Jesus Christ is. He's the sovereign ruler. I got I got news for you, kids. He's in charge still. He, He didn't wake up this morning and say, What in the world is going on in the United States? We've got two people running for president, and he's not shaken by any of that because he's still ruling sovereign and supreme. He's still the king of creation. He's not shaken by any of this, kids. And if we're looking to the politicians, if we're looking to government for our strength and to be sustained and to be provided for, our aim is off. We need to set our aim higher. Later in Colossians, Paul will say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our hearts and our thoughts on Jesus. Lift up above over the, over the governmental and politics of our culture. And let's just fix our eyes on Jesus. Amen? Because he is in charge. He didn't take the weekend off. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. The next thing we read in this, what are we supposed to proclaim about Jesus? We read that he is the resurrection. What, what that literally means, friends, is he once was dead. And you can't be dead unless you were alive. Right? Again, he's pointing out the physical realities of who Jesus Christ is. He once was alive, and then he died, and he rose again. I am so thankful that we serve a risen Savior. I'm so thankful that the one who once was alive, then died, is now alive again, never more to die. Because he lives, I live. I know the resurrection power in my life. Oh, man, this is stuff that's really good. We we continue reading in verses 15 through 27. He is the reconciler. Oh, the reconciler. Jesus signed the peace treaty in the war between God and man, and Jesus signed the peace treaty with his own blood. I, I turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, I read about Jesus, the reconciler, and I think this is a great message, friend. Jesus isn't mad at people. Jesus wants to reconcile people. Jesus isn't building a wall. Jesus is tearing down the wall. Jesus isn't saying you have to stay out. Jesus is opening in the door and saying all who will may come. And sometimes our The message we see about Jesus and believers preached in the world is the exact opposite. That we want to build a wall, we want to close a door, and we want to condemn people. And our message is the opposite. Our message is come, come, come. Come to Jesus. Be reconciled. See, this this is what we are to proclaim with earnestness and with urgency. Again, the the, the ninth thing on this list of ten is he is the indwelling one. Think about that for a minute, friends. Think about that. The king of creation, the ruler and the creator of all that ever was and is and shall ever be, he has decided to take up residence in us. He did not say, oh, you've got to find a way to me. He simply said, ask of me. Ask, and I will come in, and I will transform, and I will make my home in you. We don't have to run around and chase after this, that, or the other thing. We can just say, Lord, come into my life. Dwell in my life. Dwell in me. That's a great message, friends. That's why I call this the greatest message. And then the last thing is the hope giver. Again, we read this again just at the the end of of, of, uh, verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We live in a world that is sorely lacking in hope. So so lacking in hope that people will hope in blind faith, they'll hope in drugs, they'll hope in illicit relationships, they'll hope in this, they'll hope in that. And Jesus says, let me give you hope. Let me give you hope that not only, not only satisfies you for five or ten minutes, but let me give you a hope that will satisfy you till the end of the ages which will never come. Let me give you that hope. Let that hope dwell in you. Friends, I tell you, we have a great message to preach as a church. We have a great message as individuals to share. When people say to you, why do you go to church? Oh, that's a waste of time. Let me tell you why. I serve a risen Savior. He lives in me. He gives me peace. He gives me joy. He's forgiven my sins. He's given me new life. He's given me the hope of the resurrection. He's given me. He's given me. Oh, someone say, God is good. Turn to the person next to you say, Jesus loves you. He said, Christy, no one looked at you. Jesus loves you, dear. You're on your own over there, but you're not on your own because no one is a believer. Kathy, you're on your own. No one as a believer is ever on their own. You're never alone. Amen? So, again, if we were to uh, even elaborate further in the book of Colossians, there are other attributes, characteristics, and things about Jesus which we could equally uh, proclaim. I don't have time for that this morning. But part of our proclamation is what I call a threefold process. There's a process to our proclamation. The first part of the proclamation calls for admonition or calls for some of your translations may say words of warning. You know it's a warm up here with the lights And I'm spending a little bit of energy, and I like some water. (laughs) Some words of warning or some words of admonition. It literally means that when we proclaim Jesus, we call attention to these things. Again, I think some of the other translations do say, use the word warning, in throughout Recent church history, some of that word of warning has has been uh, people who have declared a message that was not very love-based, not very grace-based. It was kind of confrontational, in-your-face type of, you need to get right or get left. You're going to turn or burn. And, you know, just this whole anger-based re- uh, preaching that was, which God was supposed to warn, he was supposed to point out. We're supposed to announce again. Not, not to uh, berate people, but to let people know, here's the door. Here's the door. In John chapter 1, uh, John was out baptizing in the river one day. And, and uh, he said, I think it's verse 29, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That word behold simply means look. <laughs> look. And that's what we do as a church. When we, when we point out in words of admonition, hey, here's a better way. Here's the door. Here's the one who gives life. Here's the one who reconciles. Here's the one who gives hope. Here, we, we admonish people to take a look. The second part of the process is teaching and discipleship. We admonish and we teach everyone with all wisdom. You know, part of the process is making disciples. Disciples. People who have come into faith in Christ then begin to grow. Those who are born again begin to grow. Again, I I remember my wife and I have four children. I remember when they were all little. Even when they were little, they were big because they all weighed about 10 pounds or a little more. So when they were little, they were big. But they grew and they matured and they developed. And that's what happens as believers. And that process of growth is called discipleship. Jesus said to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Just calling people, teaching people how to live like Jesus lived. And the third part about the uh, uh, process is that uh, we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Just this aspect of there's a meeting, there's a presentation. About a week ago, I saw a picture on Facebook that uh, kind of overwhelmed me with awe. No, 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 Jay, it wasn't the pictures that you and Heather and the other members of the Foursquare Church took out in Hawaii, <laughs> though, though there were some pictures there that were pretty stunning and pretty amazing. Um, uh, my, my youngest actually uh, uh, is stationed in Hawaii, so I've been out there a couple times and I've seen that beauty. Some people that I've talked to say that Costa Rica is very similar in its beauty to Hawaii, I think Hawaii's got Costa Rica, but it's close. It's it's pretty spectacular. But the picture that I saw that just overwhelmed me was a picture of uh, some uh, people back in Akron, Ohio, probably early 40s to mid-40s to late 40s. There's a group of people that uh, from 1987 to 1990, I was privileged to be their youth pastor. And I remember when I left to go pioneer a church or plant a church, I told these kids, again, um, most of whom we saw come to faith or grow in faith, I said to them, the greatest testimony to my ministry in your life is not how you feel right now, but how well you are serving Jesus 25 and 30 years from now. And I looked at that group of young people who are now, again, in their 40s, pastors, pastor spouses, church leaders, deacons, um, involved in every facet of the church's ministry. And I was reminded of this verse here, that, that, that this group of people whom, I, whom the Lord allowed me to impact almost 30 years ago, I will someday be able to say, you know, Lord, I, I can't bring you money, I can't bring you titles, I can't bring you uh, uh, possessions, but I can bring you some people. I can bring you some people. And I look at that group of kids. I just my heart's overwhelmed. And I, I hear Greg and Jenny talk about the, 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 the ministry at, at camp this week, and my heart is just overwhelmed with gratitude. Because 20 years, 30 years, even 40 years down the road when, when Greg and Jenny, when you two are really old and, and you're wiping oatmeal off of Greg's chin. and, and <laughs> Wait, that was last week. Never mind. He's really tired. <laughs> and, you t- and, you, and, and one of these kids that are in the youth group today come to you and say, Oh, man, we just took 12 kids to camp. We had a great... That's presenting people to Jesus. That's the joy of life. One of the greatest joys I have as a person is introducing somebody else to Jesus Christ because that's what makes the angels in heaven rejoice. Oh, Paul uses this uh, process to lead us to the third thing, which is verse 29, which I call the word passion. And Paul uses two words that are key for us. First, he says that he, and he, along with his fellow believers, they labor. To this end, I labor. Um, doing a lot of study for today, and there's a lot of Greek words, and I haven't put, put the Greek word on, on the board. I've just tried to draw the connection. But the word labor here literally means to work. <laughs> Go figure, huh? <laughs> labor means to work hard. Um, The work of proclaiming Jesus is physically demanding. Um, Through the years as a pastor, um, I've heard people say, man, you know, preach, you got it easy. You only work two days a week. Yeah. I've, I've been blessed to work in construction. I do that a lot. The job I have for the summer, I work at Victory Mission, one of the most physically demanding jobs I've ever had. Um, most nights I get home from work and I take a two hour nap and I wake up and eat supper and go back to bed because I'm just so worn out physically. But I can tell you having, having done the physical labor like that and having done the physical labor of pastoring, pastoring is really, really hard work. So Jay, when you say to me, Carrie, I need a break. My heart goes out to you because I want to help you out in any way possible. I'm honored to preach. But more than that, I'm happy to just say, you know what, Jay, you take a break. Because we need you to be physically strong and healthy. We need you and Heather to be physically strong and healthy so you can lead us. Because this is labor. Pastoring is hard work. Lisa's not here now. She'll be here for second service. You ask her, when I have had more sickness, more physical illness... In my life, it wasn't when I was hanging drywall. It wasn't when I was building houses. It was when I was pastoring. Because pastoring, being a person who just proclaims all the time, it it just beat me up. It wore me down. That's why when I say I'm going to Costa Rica and I'm preaching nine times in nine days, and I say, please pray for me because I need God's help. I need you all to lift me up in prayer because it is physically hard. It is physically hard. And that's what Paul says. We, We labor we labor and then the second word he says we struggle struggle again the greek word if i were to put it on the board it looks like the word that we would just look at it and say well that's the word agonize when he's talking about struggling he's agonizing the uh, word in the greek was in the greek context was originally used as the agony that is the result of training physically for athletic competition but eventually the word meaning evolved and it took on a spiritual connotation meaning that that the struggle was spiritual warfare it was physically emotionally and spiritually draining so he says i struggled with all of his energy. He said, I need the impartation of spiritual empowerment so that I can do this. It's still not going to be easy, but without the power of the Spirit, it's impossible. It's still going to be physically draining. It's still going to be hard, but it's possible. When we do that. So, Paul said he was committed to the proclamation of Jesus. In his proclamation, he admonished people and he taught them and he prepared them to stand before Jesus. He worked hard and it was physical, but it was a dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, we have before us the greatest message in the history of the world it's the message of Jesus Christ and his incredible love and his desire to share that love through us to other people. He wants each one of us to be proclaimers. Again, the message of proclamation involves a variety of methods, but the the end result of that method is that lives are transformed. And again, I believe that to this end, we as a church and as individuals are called to commit ourselves. Again, the commitment... Will cost us our physical energy and will result in spiritual battles. But when we proclaim the greatest message, it will be worth it all in eternity. Would you bow your hearts with me in prayer? Perhaps you've never made a commitment to follow Christ. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. When the early disciples became disciples, they started following, they never knew what was going to happen. But they just took a step of faith and said, I'm going to follow Jesus. And as we begin to follow Jesus, we become his disciples. He teaches us. He trains us.